0: Well, it's good to see you today. We are in uh, our Great Lives from God's Word series. We are in our first week of Job, which is our final uh, Bible life of this series, uh, and then we will uh, move on from here and and then go into fall. <laughs> it's like, what is happening here? Uh, we you know we have a little bit of August, and then we'll go into fall, and it will be uh, it will be good. So. Um, It's been a good series to be in, though. Have you gotten anything out of this series? Uh, Hopefully. We've been in it long enough. I hope you got something out of it. And uh, so anyway, finishing up here with Job. So week one, this is, of course, week one is always an introduction uh, to the book and to the individual and to their place and time in history and all of that. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, on January 6th, 1994, at the Cobo Center in Detroit, Michigan, a stunned Nancy Kerrigan lay on the ground after being clubbed in the knee by an unknown assailant. Maybe you remember this. The skater would not be able to skate after that, and her rival, Tonya Harding, maybe you remember that name as well, uh, would go on to win the U.S. Championships there in Detroit. Now, people began to cheer on Kerrigan after that, and she gained a lot of support uh, over this entire ordeal. And uh, and talk began to surface a little bit about somehow Harding being involved in this. Well, most of us know what happened. Uh, most of us in here were alive and uh, old enough to remember uh, what happened in 94 there. Uh, a man named Sean Stant was the one who had struck Kerrigan's Knee with a retractable club and then fled the scene. Now, eventually, uh, he was traced back to being hired by none other than Harding's uh, boyfriend, Jeff Galluli, if you recall that. Now, all kinds of things follow, and I could not, I don't want to talk about the whole thing here, but uh, all kinds of mayhem followed, and eventually, Tanya Harding was banned from all USFSA uh, events for the rest of her life. Now, Kerrigan would heal in time uh, for the 1994 Winter Olympics, which were in Norway. And does anybody remember what she won there? What? The silver medal she wins there. Uh, but never really was able to get back to where she was prior uh, to that attack, uh, maybe physically and mentally. Amen. And so, the image that uh, from this that's etched into my mind and maybe yours as well, uh, whoever paid attention to this story, is Kerrigan on the floor after it happened, if you recall, you know, with tears streaming down her face. And she was on the floor and she was crying and saying over and over again, Why, why, why me? Right? a horribly traumatic experience for her. Uh, and did she deserve that at all? None of it was deserved. Which brings us to a hard truth about life, that life isn't fair. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Life isn't fair, and it wasn't certainly for Nancy Kerrigan, uh, but uh, yet it's just not fair. And that's kind of what speaks, uh, you know, springboards us into the book of Job, right? A lot of people read through the book of Job and they ask the question, why does a loving, righteous God permit the godly to suffer? But I think a better view of Job would be to, uh, would be to ask the question, how do the righteous suffer, right? How do the righteous suffer? That's a great question question as people we tend to have a problem with pain. Have you ever noticed that? We tend to have a problem uh, with pain because we want it to go away as fast as we can. We want it to be removed we want it to be uh, to go away we don't want any suffering we don't want any pain uh, that we have to walk through. Often, what we're looking for is escapism, right? We want to escape the problem rather than see endurance all the way through. Uh, You know, Martin Luther, the reformer, um, if you have read or know anything about his life, it's an interesting thing uh, where he had plenty of writings that were against the Roman Catholic Church, if you recall. And uh, and so he was called. Actually, a papal bull was sent to him, and he was called uh, in 1521, I believe it is, uh, to come to what's called, how in English it's spelled out, the Diet of Worms. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but the reality of it is, in German, it's more closely the Diet of Worms. Okay, so uh, which is a, a formal assembly of the Roman Empire under Charles V, in the town of Worms, or Worms, Germany, uh, where Luther was summoned to either affirm or to recant his writings uh, against the Roman Catholic Church and their traditions at the time of things like indulgences and selling those things, um, uh, which some of those similar things still actually uh, happen today, you know. I, I don't know if you follow the news, but uh you know just recently there was something said uh, by the Pope that if you did a certain thing, if you followed his tweets, it gets you time off of purgatory i don't know that's not I don't think it's in the Bible I haven't found it yet, but anyway n- nonetheless uh so things still happen like that, uh, but in this instance, it was the selling of indulgences, you know where uh where you you know um the saying was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So give us your money, you get less time in purgatory, basically. Uh, and that's how uh, the Vatican was built. Uh, so, but anyway, this is, this is, I'm taking too much time on this. But anyway, he, uh, he ended up going there, and it was either recant or, uh, or affirm what you say. But if you affirm what you say, guess what? You're probably going to get what Johann Huss got a hundred years ago, Earlier, which is to be burned at the stake. And so he knew that going into this, and yet he did not recant. Uh, He famously, you know, talked and, uh, you know, uh, affirmed his beliefs and his stance and his writings, and he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. But it's interesting, the night before all of this took place, there was a prayer. I'm going to look it up on my phone because I took a picture of it here. Uh, there was a prayer that he prayed the night before because he kind of knew that problems lay ahead for him because he couldn't recant his writings and his beliefs, right? And so, a portion of his prayer the night before, he says this he says, he says, Lord, where art thou? Have you ever felt like that? God, where are you at? You know, here I am. Where are you at? I don't necessarily sense your presence in this, but he says, My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee. I am ready. Behold me prepared uh, to lay down my life uh, for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. But the cause is holy; it is thine own. I will not let thee go, nor uh, no, nor ye, nor yet for all eternity. We don't talk like this anymore, so it's a little bit difficult. Uh, and though the world should be thronged with devils and this body which is the work of thine hands should be cast forth trodden underfoot cut into pieces consumed to ashes my soul is thine yes i have thine own word to assure me of it my soul belongs to thee and i will abide uh, and will abide with thee forever amen he says and so he has this prayer the night before uh understanding that suffering lay ahead. Now, if you know his story, you know that he was kidnapped and taken to a castle by his friends and he lived, right? So he wasn't burnt at the stake, Uh, but they would have (laughs) if they would have got their hands on him first. Uh, So, you know, there's this issue with suffering, right? This problem with suffering, this difficulty uh, of suffering. We know that it's going to happen, and yet sometimes we still want to get away from it right? Yet the problem is that the Bible has a lot to say about endurance, right? Endurance is important. Endurance and its ultimate good for us. But it has little to say about escaping pain, escaping suffering, and escaping difficulty. (sighs) I've looked. I don't know about you. Hard to find in there, all right? So there's plenty ahead that we're going to look at in the next two weeks in this series, uh, but today we're going, to look, we're going to set the stage. We're going to uh, talk about Job, uh, what we know about him from this, the time period, uh, possibly the time period of the book, uh, and then also the beginning of the book itself. So the account of Job is an ancient account. Uh, Very, very difficult to set a date for when it was written, when the events took place, because those were probably two separate times. Uh, So, you know, an oral tradition probably uh, passed it down and somebody uh, then took it up knowing the story because, frankly, they had way better memories than we have today because that's how they learned, that's how they passed stuff down. And, uh, and so uh, it's difficult to date uh, when it was, but some scholars believe, in fact, most scholars believe it's around the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, uh, some say roughly 2200 B.C. to 1800 B.C., somewhere in there, so a long, long, long time ago. Uh, what we do know is that it's among the oldest of writings in Scripture, okay, in fact, it may be the very oldest uh, letter written. It may be the very oldest of, uh, of Bible, books in the Bible, which makes it unique in a way because it's the first account of man's understanding and interaction with God, right? The English Anglican scholar E.W. Bullinger writes of Job, "'Ancient is beyond dispute. "'It probably belongs to the period covered "'by the book of Genesis.'" and possibly to the time of Abraham or the patriarchs, right? Its lesson, therefore, is the oldest lesson we could have, and it takes us back to the first lesson taught in the Bible itself. So it's of importance, right? It's of importance to stop and to look at this and to consider the book of Job, but most of us probably haven't really ever done that. If you, if you open up your Bible, you're probably not opening up to Job, you know, chapter one and stuff in your devotional time, but it's worth looking at it, and it's important. Some claim that Job is a fictional character, and uh, it's a writing of somebody's own uh, thoughts and and design, and they're just, you know, writing this thing about uh, a great story that talks about these things, uh, you know, to tell a tale of dramatic poetic, poetic literature, because Job is poetry. Yet, Ezekiel in the Old Testament and James in the New Testament both talk Of Job as a real person. Uh, So, we should take that into account and understand he was a real person as we consider this. That's where I land on this. Um, The text tells us that Job was a man from the land of, it's spelled U-Z, so you would imagine it's U-Z, you know, but it's actually not. It's pronounced U-Z, okay? So, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. So, uh, don't think I'm crazy or whatever, but it's pronounced Uts. So, he was a man from this land of Uts, which was likely an area east of the land of Israel, east of Edom uh, in Arabia near the desert, is a. A probably a good idea of where this land was and the location, and you can kind of put that together through the scriptures in Job. It, it talks about where you know all of this is uh, a place good for livestock and for farming, and east of of the uh, of Israel itself, and uh, a place that's vulnerable to Chaldean raiders and all of that. So, if all of those things come together, it's a pretty good idea that that it's east of Israel, uh, in kind of in like the Edom area and, and, uh, and in Arabia near the desert, okay? Uh, what we see is that Job is a blameless man in Job 1-1. So let's go ahead and read Job 1, 1-5 if you have a Bible or your phone. Uh, if you don't, we put some out on the rows. So open up to Job 1, 1-5, and I'm going to go ahead and read that. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very uh, uh, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of, on this day, or on, a, on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and Uh, and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the, the number of them all. For Job said, or thought, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and so he did this continually. He would offer those. Now, he's got a lot of livestock there, because if you recall last week, we talked about Elisha, who had 12 sets of oxen, and he was considered wealthy, So when we see here that Job had 500 yoke of oxen, well, he was better off, (laughs) okay? So he was well-to-do, right? Uh, He was the richest in all of his region in the east, it says. He had accumulated a lot, so he had a lot to lose, uh, a a lot of land, and in those days, uh, land and animals and servants meant wealth and respect, uh, which, you know job had the trifecta in that area right he had it all Uh, and so not only did he have land animals and servants but he had a large family which of course in those days was also seen as something that was a, a big blessing from god right lots of kids go out do the work you know you know that we should probably bring that back you know have lots of kids that go out and do the work and stuff like that you know take care of the yard and stuff but uh but you know he had a lot of kids 10 children and their families enjoyed getting together and having celebrations together, uh, and that seemed to be great, right? Life seemed to be pretty darn good for Job as we read those first five, uh, those five verses, right? But as George Banks said in Father of the Bride 2 in his opening monologue, I was feeling on top of the world, and that's when they lowered the boom, <laughs> Right? And so Job was about to go through the most difficult testing that he could imagine. There's going to be uh, many chapters in the middle of Job that uh, where, you know, he's going to be walking through this time of testing. And we're going to get into those things more uh, a a little bit as we go. We could never cover all of it because there's many, many chapters in there of conversation that goes back and forth. Uh, So we can't cover all of that. Uh, But he's going to go through difficult times. And so as the family gathered. We also see that Job was concerned about his children and parents. We get that. We understand that. Uh, And he would even go so far as to offer burnt offerings for them in case they had, you know, somehow, some way, moved away from God a little bit during their celebration. And let me just say the celebration, it doesn't say that anything wicked or wrong was taking place, right? He just wanted to make sure, like, okay, let's just make sure of this. And so he would offer these burnt offerings uh, for each of his children. Job's character was unmatched and blameless, as we cover here. He was a man of great integrity. Now, we should not deduct from that that Job was a sinless man with no problems and always made every right decision, and he was just the greatest guy ever. We should not come to that conclusion because not one person is sinless other than Jesus who has ever lived. And so, as no one can claim to be sinless, and if somebody does claim to be sinless, you should, uh, you should remind them of the verse that says, if you claim to have no sin, you are fooling yourself, you know, and you are wrong. You're in sin basically by saying that, right? So, he was righteous in his pursuits. That's what this means. He was righteous in his pursuits. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. Um, now, how do we know that? Because it says that he feared God and he stayed away from evil. As Job 1 tells us, he feared God, he stayed away from evil, or he shunned evil. And so to fear God is to, if you've not heard that term or, or if you wrestle with that term, what does that mean? It means to uh, give God great honor and give him great respect. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you should run away from him because you should be afraid of him means that you should give him great honor and respect, right? A reverence for him in who he is, in what he says, and in what he does, right? Have that honor and reverence for him. Oswald Chambers, he's a Scottish-born teacher and evangelist. He rightly stated, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. And I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I've, fear has crept in on certain things, and, and I've worried about those things uh, in such a way that it was unhealthy. And so I had to bring myself back to a place where it's like, okay, I trust God. I fear Him. I give reverence and honor to Him more than anything else, and so I trust Him more. And so maybe you've had to bring yourself back to that place, too, sometime in life at some point. I think probably all of us do. Job feared God, and we see an interaction then, after all of this stuff about Job, we see an interaction take place that may cause us to scratch our heads a little bit and wonder what's this all about, right? So uh, Job 1, 6 through 12, let's go ahead and read that. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, "'From where have you come?' And Satan answered the Lord and said, "'From going to and fro on the earth "'and from walking up and down on it.' And the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job, "'that there is none like him on the earth, "'a blameless and upright man "'who fears God and turns away from evil?' And then Satan answered the Lord and said, "'Does Job fear God for no reason?' Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you uh, you have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions have increased in the land? But stretch your hand, uh, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, "Behold, all that he has is in your hand; only against him." Do you stretch out your hands? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And that's the end of the verse, but I'll add, maybe with a smirk on his face, right? <laughs> He's ready to, to go out and do his business, right? So Satan comes into God's presence. Uh, and, and frankly, it might mess with your uh, current theological thinking. Uh, maybe you're like, uh, wait a minute, how does that, how's that work, right? Uh, is that even a thing? And, and so you've never thought about this, uh, maybe. Uh, maybe you thought, you know, he's a little red dude who has horns and a pitchfork, and he, you know, sits on people's shoulders when he's trying to tempt them and kind of jabs them with that pitchfork or something. And maybe you thought, well, he's in hell right now, ruling from hell, and that's, that's his only domain is there, and, and, and so that's what he's doing. But the reality of it is that's just a fairy tale that's made up, okay? Like more medieval times and, and that type of thing. Satan has free reign to move about the earth and even enter into God's presence as seen here in Job. Now, I like how David Guzik, if you want a commentary that is really uh, easy to understand and it flows well, David Guzik's uh, enduring word commentary is always great. I like to read through that and get his, his thoughts on things and weigh those out. But he writes this he writes, The fact that they came to present themselves before the Lord shows that angelic beings. Indeed, even fallen angelic beings have access to the presence of God, but one day they will be restricted to earth. And there's some verses in there, Revelation 12, 9, 1 Kings 22:21, 21, Zechariah uh, 3, 1. Those talk about that specific thing. But here we see Satan comes in and, he, and God asks him, from where have you come? He doesn't say, uh, from hell with my pitchfork, you know, or whatever. Uh, he doesn't say that. Uh, He says, from patrolling the earth and watching everything that is going on. Now, a few things from this portion of Scripture that we can take from it. God is sovereign over all things, and Satan has no power over God. It's not an equal struggle, we could say, okay? It's not an equal struggle uh, between, you know, for good and evil between God and Satan. Now, I don't know about you. Is anybody on social media, is anybody still on Facebook? I don't know. I mean, I I still am. Uh, But sometimes you'll see uh, something come across your Facebook that says, share if you want God to win. Uh, Keep scrolling if you love Satan, or something, I don't know, (laughs) something like that, something ridiculous, you know, and it'll have God and Satan in an arm wrestling match, you know, like, who's going to win, who's going to win this battle, and every time I see those things, I'm like, man, I'd love to just sit down and have a conversation with the person who shared that, okay, but, you know, in our culture, sometimes we think God good, Satan bad, it's a wrestling match, they're equal in power, but that's not true. Satan is a created being from God. He was an angel who fell because of pride. So he is created by God, chose to sin against God from pride and got removed from there, but still has access into God's presence to ask, you know, to hear from God and be asked questions because Satan doesn't come in and say, what up, God? You know, I've been, you know, God says to him, where have you come from? You know, he's the one speaking to Satan and asking the questions and even throws Job's name out there. Now, that's interesting, don't you think? Thanks a lot, God. (laughs) You know, I'm living my life trying to do the best. And here God says, have you considered Job? He's so, he just follow me, he fears me, all these things. You know, he throws his name out, which is really, really interesting. Satan didn't initiate that and say, I'm coming after Job, is that all right with you? Right, it didn't work that way. They're not equal in power, and we have to know that, right? God is seen as a powerful king on the throne with full authority, while Satan is seen as a sneaky schemer trying to catch his prey, you know, off guard, right? Right? And this is true. It's exactly what happens. So ultimately, we see that Satan has no authority except that which is allowed by God. And even in the testing allowed by God, he will use it, God will use it for his people's good and for his glory, maybe more than anything else, for his own glory. So in uh, the moment, though, I know you and I uh, oftentimes it feels extremely unfair to us, right? <laughs> like, is this fair? Uh, it feels unfair to me. Satan, his name means the adversary or the opposer. And, uh, and, he, and he, as his name means, he comes to catch Job off guard by removing the things uh, that he believes are keeping him worshiping God and connected to God, right? These material blessings that, uh, that God has allowed him to have and, and uh, you know, given to him and, and even uh, given him more and, and they've grown, right? And so he thinks that his accusations here are not so much against Job, but they are accusation, accusations against God himself. Well, of course, God, he's going to serve you and worship you because you give him a lot of stuff, Right? Because you are blessing everything. You're giving him more. And he's got this giant family. He's got, you know, all this livestock and all these things. You know, this land and servants. Of course he's going to worship you. Duh. Right? And so he's saying these things. It's not about Job. It's about Satan uh, making accusations against God himself. So... God uh, gives Satan the go-ahead to test his servant Job, right? Take everything but his life. And so Satan left the presence of God feeling pretty good about what he was about to pursue, I think, and what he was able to do now. And from Job 1.13 until Job 2.7, we see that everything about Job's life can be taken from him, right? What did Job suffer, Right? Or why did Job suffer is the question uh, that we might find difficult to understand. Why did he suffer? Uh, It's a difficult question to understand if we look at our own comfort level alone, right? If we're looking at ourselves alone, it's a difficult question to answer. Certainly, it was a test of Job's endurance, right, in following and fearing God, And we're going to see next week that Job will have a lot of voices speaking into his life, into this situation. Many voices in his ear, but the question will be, what does Job actually do, right? Because whatever he does, here's the reality, it's going to speak to the people around him and speak of either his faith in God through all of it or his lack thereof through it all, right? James 5.11 uh, we we read this, right? I took a picture of this one too on my phone, so I'll read it. Uh, James 5, 11, um, 10 and 11 here, it says, for examples, James writes this, who's the half-brother of Jesus. He says, for examples on patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And so here's what we see in that, that Job's response led to other people saying, it's faith that Job endured through it all. It wasn't a lack of faith. He stayed strong through the midst of it. The other thing is that God's people, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, there were it talks about there being angelic beings uh, watching and marveling at what they learn from God's purposes and dealings with his people, all right? And Ephesians 3, 10 through 11 talk about that. And it says this, well, uh, Paul writes, I was chosen to explain to everyone the mysterious plan of God, the creator of all things, that had kept secret from the beginning, all right? And then in verse 10, he says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's an interesting thing to me. God uses tests in our lives to build his people and their character Uh, and build endurance in people, Uh, and also it speaks something to the angelic beings of how God interacts with his people because they have a very different relationship to God than we do, all right? So that's an interesting verse to read and do some studying on, all right? God uses tests to build us our character and our endurance, and in the end, every one of us is better off because of it. So a few final thoughts here. This is an enemy. There is an enemy we encounter that we can't see, but he's real. In fact, the spiritual battle is the most real battle that we face in life, all right? Uh, Every day. So I would just encourage you, pray fervently every day because there is a spiritual battle taking place that we can't see, but it's very real. And through these battles, you know what we receive when we endure through them? What we receive is A testimony, a testimony, which are crucial to share uh, with each other, to encourage each other, uh, and to, you know, it's training for us as we grow in our endurance and patience and we get that testimony, we can share it with other people as an encouragement. What we learn in life, we have to share. What we learn in life, we must share. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's why testimonies are so important. There are trials to endure, number two, that we endure, that we don't deserve, but they are permitted. We don't deserve them, but they're permitted. At times, things uh, seem unfair, yet they must be endured, and our faith is strengthened because of them. So the question we might keep on our, uh, the tip of our uh, mind at all times is, what will people around us and the angelic beings watching learn from our lives? What will be learned from our lives, right? as we walk through times of struggle uh, that might seem unfair? And third, there is a plan that we walk out, and we do not always understand, but it's our its best. It's for our best, right? Unpleasant as it might be, we trust our God is faithful, and that we can trust Romans 8:28 uh, as we think back over that verse, and that he will work things out for good, for his people, right? He will use things that we go through, uh, all things, for good, for those who are his people and who are called according to his purpose, is what we know from Romans 8.28. Our life is a mere needlepoint on the timeline of history, and that's a fact. It's very, 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 small yet God sees from the beginning to the end even though our life is but a needle point on the timeline and so we trust him because he knows the start to the finish and everything in between he sees it all and uses it for his purposes and his glory ultimately you know the devil thought that he was winning Uh, on this, right? He thought that was going to be a great move for him and that he was winning. But here's what Spurgeon points out, and this is uh, what we'll end with here. Foolish devil, he says, he is piling up uh, a pedestal on which God will set his servant Job, that he may be looked upon with wonder by all ages. Oh, how many saints have been comforted in their distress by this history of patience. How many have been saved out of the jaw of the lion and from the paw of the bear by the dark experiences of the patriarch of Uts. O arch fiend, how art thou taken in thine own net? Thou hast thrown a stone which has fallen on thine own head. Thou madest a pit for Job and hast fallen into it thyself. Thou art taken in with thine own craftiness. Right? Right? What Satan thought was a good idea for his purposes, God had other plans for. And we'll see in the final two weeks of Job uh, just how those things work out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your presence here with us. We are grateful uh, beyond imagination and belief, Lord. We are so grateful for your presence here with us. God, we look to you. Uh, Anybody in here who is walking through uh, a struggle in this moment, Lord, will you remind them of your goodness? And even here in Job, as we see some difficult things that will be taking place next week, Lord, we also know that you are good and we can trust you if we endure with you to the end. God, we will see what you do in our lives and ultimately uh, others will see that as well. And God, that's what we want is for our lives to point to you, not just our words pointing to you, but everything that we do, God, would be pointing directly to you. Lord, thank you for your presence here today uh, and in our lives. No matter where we go, uh, if we are your people, you are with us by the power of your Holy Spirit and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And no matter where we go, you are with us and will walk us through. Be with us in the midst, even when we don't feel it or sense it. You are there, and so God. Give us peace knowing that uh, today and in this week to come. Uh, And uh, so we are grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, everyone. It's Pastor Clint. I want to thank you for joining us today for this podcast, and I hope it was beneficial for you. Our vision at Family Life Church is simple, to create a safe an authentic environment for people to encounter Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please don't hesitate to send us an email at admin at myflc.org or connect with us via social media on Facebook or Instagram at Family Life Church Newberg. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Again, thank you for listening today and God bless you as you pursue Him.